turn to John's Gospel, chapter 16. If you're listening by radio, you could also turn there as long as you're not driving. I read an author who once said that the world is like a wrecked ship that is about to sink. The captain knows it's about to sink, but he wants to get all the people on board in the last few minutes of their lives to like him. And so he tells people in second class, they can go to first class, no upgrade charge, absolutely free. If they like, they can go to the bar and have all the free booze they want. They can play soccer in the dining rooms, break the lamps, doesn't matter, have a good time. And everybody says, what a great captain we have. We have so much freedom on this boat to do whatever we want. I like this guy. Not knowing that they'll all be dead in five minutes. Well, the captain of the ship called the world is the devil. And he has skillfully duped people on this boat that he's a great guy. Gives them great freedom. And and tries to do everything he can for them to stay on that boat, deny that there really is a sinking ship, all the way to their doom. Now here's the problem. Our challenge is that we are also on that ship. We know it's about to sink. We also know, however, there's a lifeboat coming. It's available for anybody who wants it. And here we are trying to convince people. The boat's sinking, but a lifeboat is coming. You need to get on it. And we're faced with opposition. Some will say, there is no lifeboat. My grandmother used to believe in that lifeboat stuff. I don't buy it. This boat isn't sinking. We're fine. Another person might say, well, I believe that all boats lead to God. Even this one. There's big boats and small boats and they're going in different directions, but they're all going to eventually go to safety. And so we're trying to convince the world that they need help, but the world doesn't want it. And this is a monumental task. We cannot do it alone. But what if there were a helper who was on that boat who could read people's minds and not only read their minds but also speak to their thoughts, to their minds, to the inner person and convince them, there's a lifeboat coming, you're going to sink, you need to get on it. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in when it comes to His activity in the world. Have you ever known a person that you thought was beyond reach spiritually? You don't say it out loud, but inward you go, they're never going to come to Christ. They're a lost case. And then sometime later, they come walking up to you with a Bible and a smile, and you're like, oh my goodness, you're saved. Yep. (laughs) That's because there are no impossible tasks with God. God has ways of dealing with people. God has ways of getting people's attention. The most unlikely people. There was a farmer who cared nothing for the things of God. This farmer had three boys. Their names were Jim, John, and Sam. They didn't want to go to church. They didn't have time for God. They were busy farmers. 
And when people tried to witness to them or invite them to church, they said, no way, not, not interested, not even curious. One day, Sam was bitten by a rattlesnake, taken to the hospital. Doctor looked at him. It was too late. Looked like he was going to die. So they called in the preacher of the local church. He looked over the situation, assessed it, saw what was coming down, realized these are the guys we tried to get into our church for a long time. No avail. Now they call for me. And so he prays this prayer. O wise and righteous Father, we thank Thee that in Thy wisdom Thou didst send this rattlesnake to bite Sam. He has never been inside a church. It's doubtful that he ever has in all of his time ever prayed or even acknowledged Thine existence. And now we trust that this experience will be a valuable lesson to him and will lead to his genuine repentance. And now, Father, wilt Thou send another rattlesnake to bite Jim? and another to bite John, and another really big one to bite the old man. (laughs) For years we have done everything we know to get them to turn to Thee, but all in vain. It seems, therefore, that what all our combined efforts could not do, this rattlesnake hath done. We thus conclude that the only thing that will do this family any real good is a rattlesnake. So, Lord, send us bigger and better rattlesnakes in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a good prayer. Could it be that some of you have felt bitten, convinced about your own spiritual future, a work that only the Lord can do? Maybe God is getting your attention. Well, I draw your attention now to verse 5. Down to verse 11, verses that we just read last week, but really didn't make comment on, because last week we dealt with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as believers. Now we turn to what the Holy Spirit does in the life of an unbeliever. Even though Jesus was saying this to his disciples, it was good news they needed to hear it. And we see, first of all, the necessity for the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be leaving you. You're going to be staying here but the Holy Spirit is going to be leading you while I'm gone. They didn't want to hear this. They didn't want to hear that Jesus was leaving. They were still a little shocked over this. It's not what they expected. In fact, the very next day, Jesus would be killed. They're not ready for that. Oh, he'll rise from the dead, but then after 40 days, he will ascend into heaven, and it's been 2,000 years. He hadn't come back yet. And that was not in their minds... You see, they, as Jewish disciples, had a ready-made eschatology of what's going to come down in the future. This is it. Number one, they were taught and they believed that just before the Messiah comes will be a period of national turmoil so as to get the people expectant for the Messiah to come. That happened, they thought. Rome occupied the land. People were hungry for spiritual deliverance. Number two, they expected that a forerunner, an Elijah-like forerunner, 
would come and introduce the Messiah. And that's why people said to John the Baptist at the Jordan River, Are you that prophet? Are you Elijah? They thought he was. Number three, they believe that when the Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom, that he will set up positions of authority in the kingdom. That's why in the upper room they had been arguing who's going to be the greatest. Now Jesus is saying, that's not going to happen, boys. I'm leaving. You're staying. But the Holy Spirit will come and lead you and guide you and give you direction and give you knowledge and give you power. Now what I want to draw your attention to is this. Jesus was talking about the gift they were going to receive. All they are focusing on is the loss of Jesus. Does that sound familiar? I just picture God so often with a gift He wants to give us, but all we can think about is what we might lose if we get that gift. I think this happens all the time when people consider even coming to Christ. They hear the gospel and all they can think of is, but I'm going to lose my friends. Yeah, but you're going to gain like the ultimate friend, one who sticks closer than a brother. Well, I might lose out on all the good times that I had as a heathen. (laughs) Yeah, right. Good times. All the loneliness, the lack of direction. You're going to get eternal life. The only thing you're going to lose out on is, let's see, hell. But you see, Satan does that. He comes and he lies to us. He he plays that selective memory game. He tries to remind you of the old times, the good times. He just doesn't tell you how bad they really were. I remember those parties. Yeah, remember how lonely you were that night? It's all a lie. I remember in high school when there were clever commercials at a time that the military desperately needed people. It was a time when there wasn't the patriotism that we have in our day and age. They were doing anything they could to get young people into the military. And so they had great commercials. And in looking at these commercials, you would think they're going to give you like a private car and a private jet to fly and the greatest set of clothes. And I remember talking to some of my friends after they joined the military and they had a scowl on their face. I said, what happened? They said, I believe the commercial." I think the devil tries to do that. He tries to hold out a clever commercial of what you might lose rather than what you might gain. I think this happens when people consider their future as a Christian, what they're going to do with their lives. They may look at a missionary and they would say, I could never do that. I could never lose all of this stuff here and go to the mission field. Oh, really? Why don't you talk to a missionary who's done it? And see if they've they've lost anything. They will tell you of the fulfillment in giving their life in that area of the world that the Lord called them to. They would say, we didn't give up anything. I'll tell you what we've gained. What an exciting life I live. Like the veteran missionary Jim Elliott, who died in the line of duty. But he said these famous words, He is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. Heard about a guy who went to Colorado in the gold rush. 
he uh, bought a right. He was mining a vein. It was a good vein. He was getting lots of gold from it. He had sold his home, left his family, given up everything, bought the equipment, was mining this vein of gold. When, after a period of time, the vein ran out. He kept digging a little further, nothing. A little further, nothing. A little further, nothing. Finally, he said, you know what? I quit. I've given up everything. I've lost everything. I've lost my family. I've lost my inheritance. All the money's run out from the gold that I've gotten. I quit. So he sold it. The guy that he sold it to had somebody go out and assess the gold mine. The man came back and said, according to my calculations, if they're correct, if you go about three feet further, you'll strike one of the biggest veins ever in these Rocky Mountains. So... The man who bought the gold mine dug three feet further into the rock and struck what was called the biggest vein of gold in the history of the gold rush in Colorado. Oh, if that first guy just did three feet more. What he would have gained, but all he could think of is what he was losing. Boys, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. It's, it's an impossible task what you're going to do, but you'll be able to do it with his help. But you're leaving. But we're losing. Oh, but you're gaining. Now, we can't really fault them because the way I figure it is if we hung out with Jesus in the flesh for three and a half years, we'd be bummed out if he left too. Let's see, anytime there's a storm, he could calm it. Anytime your relative is sick, Jesus could heal them. Thousands of people need lunch, Jesus can feed them. You got to pay taxes to the Jerusalem IRS? Get a fish, open its mouth. So he's a handy guy to have around. And now he's leaving, and that's all they can think about. But what Jesus is getting at is this soon these disciples are going to have a task, a mission, and they're going to need a helper, verse 7. You're going to need help because you're going on a mission, you have a task. I'm sending you out into all the world to preach the gospel to every living creature. You can't do it alone. You need a helper. And for the next 2,000 years, the church would be about the business of telling the world about Him. Now think about that. Go into all the world. All the world? That sounds like an impossible task, especially for 12, what, fishermen? Now 11 fishermen? Go into all the world they would be discouraged after a couple weeks. After the persecution in Jerusalem, after the hostility in Greece and the Gentile regions, even to the point of death, unless they had help. And this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. There's somebody on that boat to convince all of the soon-to-be-dying dead people that are sinking that there is a lifeboat. That's where the helper comes in. He'll be getting people's attention. He'll be bringing them to salvation. Think for a moment about the task that is ahead of you. You live in this world with billions of people, way more people now who have never heard the gospel than lived back then when the disciples were around. And Jesus says to you, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. That's a big job. Have you ever just stopped to consider how many unbelievers live right now? Somebody estimated that if you took all of the unbelievers on earth 
made them form a line, the line would be so long it would go all the way around planet Earth 30 times. And that the line is growing every day 20 more miles. That sounds like an impossible task. That's why the Holy Spirit is an evangelistic necessity. Jesus didn't say, go for it, boys, you're on your own. Hope you don't get beat up too bad. No, he said, you're going to have a helper. He's going to be very active in the world. Let's look at what he does. Here's now the activity of the Holy Spirit in the world. Jesus said, verse 8, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. First thing Jesus said this Holy Spirit is going to do is to convict the world of sin. That's the first step to salvation. Convincing a person that they are a sinner. He convinces us that we are guilty of our sin so that we'll be disturbed by our sin so that we'll seek deliverance from our sin. That's how conviction works. Now you've noticed that not everybody wants to take responsibility for their sin. There's a problem in their life. If there's some flaw, as they would call it, some problem, it is often blamed on somebody else or on something else. Some people blame their environment. I am the way I am because when I was young, my parents did this to me. They fed me spinach. That's why I'm so depressed. Or others will blame their genetics. Well, I just have a gene that has a propensity toward violence. I can't help it. So I just, I just shoot people. I just can't help it. It's just my genetics. And people I've read articles are saying that about infidelity, adultery, all sorts of weird behavior. It's all genetic. This is called passing the buck, folks. It's not new. It's as old as the hills and twice as dusty. Adam tried that. As soon as God said, hey, uh, you sinned, Adam. It's the woman you gave me. Your fault. This whole marriage idea was your thing. You've heard the story, perhaps, of Frederick the Great, the king of Prussia, who went to visit a Berlin prison. And this monarch walked through the halls of the prison, and every prisoner, without fail, got on his knees and proclaimed his innocence. I'm here because of a mistrial of justice. I deserve to be out. And they all had some flaky excuse. Every one of them except one guy. And the monarch said, I suppose you're going to tell me you're innocent. You deserve to be set free as well. The prisoner said, no, sir. I am guilty and I deserve whatever punishment is meted out. Frederick the Great smiled and then turned to the warden of the prison and he said, come here and release this rascal at once before he corrupts all these fine people. (laughs) Only one of them was really convicted that he was a criminal. Now listen, bringing conviction to a person is not your job. It is not your calling to convict people. In fact, it won't even work if you try. I know some people that are really good at guilt. And they think, I can make these people feel really guilty. 
But the Holy Spirit of God has to be the one to bring authentic conviction that leads to conversion. You can try to make them guilty and produce this sense of shame. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Are you? No? You sure? Yeah. You remember Jonah? Jonah disobeyed God by turning his back on God, went down to Joppa, bought a ticket, got on a boat, got several miles out to sea without any conviction, without any remorse at all. And even when the sailors found out who this guy was, they were more convicted than Jonah. What have you done, they said. You bummed God out. Not good, Jonah. Now Jonah should have said, oh, wow. This is a work of God. Even these pagan sailors feel this way. I'm going to repent right now. He didn't do it. He goes, throw me overboard. Throw me overboard? Yeah, throw me overboard. See, they throw him overboard. It wasn't until he's really down in the mouth, literally, in, in a whale's mouth, in a stomach of a, of a huge whale, that he cries out to God because there is conviction. In the book of Acts... There's a great story of Peter's preaching. Peter, the guy who was afraid to give a testimony to a servant girl in a courtyard. The Holy Spirit came upon Peter and upon the disciples and they hit the streets of Jerusalem preaching. And as Peter began to speak about Jesus Christ, the Bible says in Acts 2.37, Peter's words convicted them deeply. The New King James says, they were cut to the heart. That's conviction. They were cut to the heart and they said, Brethren, what must we do? Now that day, 3,000 people were saved. It wasn't because of Peter's eloquent sermon or his masterful exegesis of the text. It was the Holy Spirit who brought those people into the kingdom. I remember my friends telling me that I needed a Savior. I needed the Gospel. Oh, but I was religious. I didn't need that stuff. I didn't need the crutch. They didn't convince me. But one afternoon, I was all alone in an unguarded moment watching a television set, and the Lord used Dr. Billy Graham to speak to my heart, and it was the Holy Spirit doing a work that nobody else could do. Yes, it's the Holy Spirit that chases you that nudges you. He's called the hound of heaven. And conviction of sin is the first necessary step to salvation. There's no conviction, there is no conversion. As A.W. Tozer put it, until a man has gotten into trouble with his heart, he's not likely to get out of trouble with his God. That's the conviction of sin. I want you to notice something else about what we just read before we move on. Notice it's not sins in general, but sin specifically. The Holy Spirit is going to convict people of a specific sin. And what is that? Unbelief. Of sin because they do not believe in me, Jesus said. Not the sin of gambling, not the sin of murder, not the sin of stealing, not the sin of adultery, not the sin of speeding. Not the sin of giving dirty looks to a police officer. Although all those things are wrong and God will deal with them. But the worst sin of all is the sin of not believing in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit will convict people of that. By the way, this is the hardest sin to convince people of. 
If you were to ask the average unbeliever, excuse me, Mr. Unbeliever, do you think that your not believing in Jesus Christ is sinful? They would say, absolutely not. Everybody has their own belief system, their own style, their own way, their own direction. And a lot of people would look at their unbelief as a sign of their sophistication, as a sign of their intellectual acumen. Oh, no. I don't believe in Jesus Christ because I can't believe in that. Oh, I'd like to believe, but I'm not as dumb as you are. I'm just so far superior to you. But when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of a person, they don't feel that way anymore. There's a sense of guilt. I need to do something about my sin. That's conviction. And sometimes, if a person fights conviction, there's not only a sense of guilt, but a sense of anger. There's a... There's a sense of guilt, and that guilt is alleviated when the person confesses his sin to God. There's a sense of anger when they fight conviction. Let me just say, if you're living with anybody right now who's under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and they're fighting it, I feel sorry for you. And I'll pray for you. You should write your name down on a prayer list and we'll pray for you, because that's tough. There's a story about the evangelist Dwight L. Moody who went with another evangelist across the country preaching... He came to one town. There was a man who came to the meetings under deep conviction who wrote this letter. Quote, I wish you and Moody had never come to this city. Before you came, I wasn't troubled about my sins. You talk of peace and joy, but you've turned my soul into a living hell. I can't stay away from the meetings, but to come only makes me feel worse. You promise salvation, but all I find is torment. I wish you would leave. And then I would get back my old peace. That's the Holy Spirit bringing conviction and guilt to the soul. And only He can do that. Next, He will bring conviction to the world of righteousness, Jesus said, of sin, of righteousness and judgment, of sin because they believe not on Me. Verse 10, of righteousness because I go to My Father and you see Me no more. Now, the world boasts of its own righteousness. This is very typical. I don't need Jesus. I'm a good enough person. It's self-adulatory. It's self-comparing, comparing themselves with another person. That's worldly righteousness. But when the Holy Spirit convicts a person of sin, they're very impressed with their own righteousness, unimpressed with their own righteousness. And they're very impressed with Christ's righteousness. In other words, when they see who Jesus really is and they're in His presence, they also see themselves for who they really are. And there's a reaction. A woe is me reaction. The same reaction Peter had, Mr. Cool Guy Fisherman, who after Jesus caught all of those fish, miraculously, Peter fell on his knees and all Peter could say is, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Not... Lord, depart from me. You're a little better fisherman than I am. No. He saw who he was and he saw himself and there was a woe is me reaction. Just like Isaiah had when he saw that vision of the Lord. And Isaiah said, Woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I have seen the Lord, the King of glory. He thought he was so good before he was in God's presence. 
Now there's a conviction of sin that produces an unimpressed mentality of my own righteousness and a desire for His righteousness. I I don't know if you've ever stood next to somebody in a song service who has an outstanding voice. But if you have, you don't really want to sing very loud. Or maybe you were sort of self-conscious about what you were wearing and you walked into a room and there's somebody dressed just killer to the hilt and you really feel like a slob in comparison. One author said, you don't impress Nassau with your paper airplane. You don't boast about your crayon sketches in the presence of Picasso. Nor do you boast of your own goodness in the presence of the perfect holy God who is absolutely righteous. Here's the point Jesus is making. When Jesus died for our sins on the cross for our atonement, He ascended up into heaven. He returned to the Father. The Father was saying basically, this is the righteousness I will accept into my presence. The world crucified Him as being wicked and sinful, but the Father validated him as being righteous by the ascension of Jesus into heaven and made a statement to the world. If you want righteousness, the only righteousness that you can have in my presence is his righteousness that comes by believing in his finished work on the cross, his death, his atonement, and that ascension into heaven proved that. So not only will the Holy Spirit who's on the boat with you that is sinking, convince people of their sin, he'll convince people what they need to do about their sin. They need to get his righteousness, not their own. Third, he convicts the world of judgment, Jesus said. Sin, righteousness, and of judgment. Of judgment, verse 11, because the ruler of this world is judged. It is the Holy Spirit who does way more than we can do It's the Holy Spirit who convinces an unbelieving man or woman that there literally is a judgment to come. If they spurn the righteousness that is in Christ alone, they will face a certain judgment. So follow the thought. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. That is, they're guilty of sin. Then the Holy Spirit will convince them what they need to do about their sin, get the righteousness of Christ. Third, the Holy Spirit will convince them What will happen to them if they don't receive the righteousness of Christ? They will face a judgment. And all of that is proven to the world by what happened to Satan. Satan is doomed. His his fate is sealed. He will be ultimately judged. He was judged at the cross, basically, but he will be put out of business. And the Bible speaks about that sealed fate, that doom of Satan. It's always a healthy sign when an unbeliever gets worried about Judgment Day. I've heard people say, well, you don't want to scare people. I don't know, that's pretty scary. That's reality. Whenever I see an unbeliever worried about dying or about facing God, that's a good sign. It should move them to do something about it. I had a law enforcement officer in my office not too long ago who said to me, Skip, you're going to think this is really weird, maybe even funny, but i got to tell you, I've laid my life on the line before. This is what I do. But suddenly, all of a sudden, I'm afraid to die. I'm afraid, 
what's going to happen to me when I die? And he, Isn't that crazy? I go, no. Don't you think that's weird? Uh-uh. I think it's good. I think it's good enough that it brought you here, and I'm going to tell you what you need to do about that. And the Holy Spirit did a wonderful work of bringing that young man to Christ. Now, some will scorn judgment. They say, this captain on this boat, man, he's given us all this freedom. He's cool. This is good. I like this guy. We can play soccer in the, in, in the room. We, we can go to first class. Booze is free. He's a partier. I like him. They need to be convinced of the truth of God's future judgment. I have a newspaper article that I saved from California. A 17-year-old Californian by the name of Wilson Matea said, quote, I often think of Satan as a cool dude. Since he controls one part of the supernatural, he tends to let you be on your own to do whatever you want, whereas God wants to put you in a jail cell. What that young man doesn't understand is that the prince of this world is going down. He's also on that boat. Oh, he might be the captain, but that ship is sinking. And that ruler of this world, Satan, is sinking with it. And he knows his doom is sure. The necessity of the Holy Spirit in the world, the helper. The activity of the Holy Spirit in the world. He'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You can't. Let him. There's a a third part I want to close with. And that's the agency of the Holy Spirit in the world. I want you to look at verse 7. Because while it is the Holy Spirit who does the convicting, nevertheless, He does it through human agents. He does it through channels, us. Verse 7, If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to who? To you. To you and to me. To the church. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And then verse 8, when he has come, that is, when he has come to you, when he has come to you, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's how it works. The Holy Spirit does the unseen work, but we're involved in it. We can't go, well, I'm not going to say anything then because the Holy Spirit's just going to do it. If they're predestined to be saved, I don't have to get involved. Not at all. Every conversion in the entire book of Acts was done by the Holy Spirit through human channels. Peter just didn't stand up there in Pentecost and go, He said something. And when they heard His words, they were cut to the heart. But He was the instrument, the channel. Even Saul of Tarsus, who was knocked off of his beast, He was under conviction. In fact, the Lord Jesus said, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. I think he was referring to the goads of conviction brought on by seeing young Stephen as a martyr, giving his life as he was being stoned to death. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And with joy he went into the kingdom. I think that was wearing on him, eating at him. Then there's Cornelius. Oh yeah, he got a vision of an angel. But the angel didn't preach the gospel to him. The angel said, go get Peter. He'll tell you how to get saved. Peter came and told him the gospel and he got saved. So the Holy Spirit uses human agents. Here's how it works. The Holy Spirit is on the boat. 
He's changing minds. He's reading minds. He's bringing that feeling of guilt and the need to alleviate that guilt by the righteousness of Christ. And what will happen if people don't do that? But we still have to tell them stuff. We need to tell them that apart from Him, you're doomed. You're a sinner. But God has a plan for your sin in the righteousness of Jesus Christ that will be given to you freely. That's the lifeboat. We need to tell them this is an age of grace. God is so patient. But one day this age of grace will be over with and it will be an age of judgment. There was a boy in the south who tried to join a church. And uh, the deacons of the church were instructed to interview anybody who said they wanted to join their church, make sure that they were all saved. So the deacon said, well, tell us, how'd you get saved? The young boy said, well, God did his part and I did my part. And they questioned him further. What do you mean by that? What was God's part specifically and what was your part specifically? said, so, well, God's part was the saving and my part was the sinning. And I ran from God as fast and as far as my sinful heart and rebellious legs could take me. But then he said, God took out after me and he chased me and got a hold of me. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the stuff he does that nobody else can do. And maybe you sort of feel like you're being pursued by the hound of heaven. You've been a little uneasy. You come to church and you like to be around church, but then it bothers you at the same time. (laughs) Good. God, send us bigger and better rattlesnakes. Because you'll never have the kind of peace and rest as when you do something about that conviction when you get a clear conscience and you can lay your head on a pillow at night because you're at peace with God, knowing that you're not living like, well, I was good today, God will accept me. And then the next day, I wasn't very good today, I'm scared. But you're trusting in His righteousness and you have passed over the judgment of God because it was all put on Him. You'll rest easy. The sooner you do that, the better. And it could be that the Holy Spirit of God has been trying to get your attention lately. And you thought, well, I'll respond to that by simply going through the motions. I'll be at church on the weekends unless something really good comes up. But otherwise, I'll be there. Rather than giving your life to Jesus Christ and making it personal and making it real. Thank God for the hound of heaven. If he's hounding you, tonight's the night to respond to that. Let's pray. Lord, we become conscious now that we're not just in a room full of people, but that we're under the eye of the all-knowing, all-seeing, ever-piercing eye of God who knows our motivations, who knows what we're really like, what we really think. 
Lord, this is one of those times, like most every other time, that we really need the Holy Spirit. Because there is a task to be done. And we can't do it on our own. And though Jesus hasn't come yet, we're not focusing on that. We're focusing on what we have. We have this third person of the Trinity doing so much work in the lives of worldly people that all we have to do is be an instrument. We pray, Lord, that you would do what nobody else can do. Bring that sense of conviction. That sense of being disturbed about our lives, about our sin, so that we might seek deliverance from it. Please, Lord, don't let anybody hide under the false hope of self-righteousness, but trust only in the righteousness of Christ that was validated when Jesus ascended into heaven. Lord, also, you have brought to our attention tonight what will happen if we just let it go, if we just shine it on, if we don't respond, if we don't take your gift of salvation, that gift of righteousness imputed, that there is a judgment coming. And Lord, I stand here knowing that unless your Holy Spirit does the work, it won't get done. So please, Lord, do what you promised. Bring that sense of need to some in this room right now and those on the radio right now. Right now.